sorry. It's just tickled me that has. <laughs> they have way too much political power. Nobody wants to live there. Flyover states. <laughs> User error 53. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. We're back. And there have been people signing up to the forum at community.error.show. So well done, everyone. And there's some good suggestions for topics and ask errors on there. And also some good feedback. There was one particularly long feedback about the um, having kids thing last time, which I just haven't really formed my thoughts on how to reply yet. So I'm not ignoring you. It's just I don't know how to reply to such a heavy topic. I'm totally ignoring you. (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) I'm not really. I'm exactly the same position. I just read it and think, oh, gosh, that's a long one. Can you break it down tweet size and then I'll reply to each of those? (laughs) Yeah. Can you make it a yes or no? Yeah. You ever get those kind of emails like that where it's like, if this were a real short email, I would reply. But because it's such a long, like, thought-out email that I have to dedicate time, I have to sit down and, you know, I have to think about things now. But also then you feel guilty for not replying sooner. Yeah. Because they've invested a huge amount of time. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So remember that you don't have to have the hashtag Ask Error Questions be about Linux. Linux ones are fine, but they can be about anything you like. So... Do remember, you can use that hashtag on Twitter and Telegram and you can email us and stuff like that. But speaking of emails not getting replied to, there's a reason why things like Twitter are massively popular because you've only got, what, 280, is it now, characters? And you just necessarily can only ask questions and make points that are easy to reply to. So that kind of segues nicely into this first question then. Is social media a good thing? And uh, you posed this question, Alan, didn't you? Yeah, I went out for a curry with uh, some friends who I don't know particularly well. They're um, they're dancing dads. Uh, they don't dance themselves. They have daughters who dance uh, and sons ah. who dance at the dance school <laughs> that my daughter goes to. And uh, they said, oh, let's go out for a curry. And they invited me to a WhatsApp group or Facebook or whatever. And um, we chatted. And it, it very quickly degenerated into sending gifts backwards and forwards and then eventually we you know sorted out a date and we arrived and we're sat in the pub have a few drinks then go and sit in the curry house and everyone gets out their phones and i I realize this is not news to anyone and everyone's seen this recently but it was quite depressing that you know you sit there and a bunch of people i don't know very well and we're having a chat and Some people have got their phones out and chatting to their wives. It's like, dude, you want a dad's night out having a curry with the lads and you're chatting away to your wife on your phone. I'm sure there might be important subjects that you need to discuss with your wife, but you know, in the past you could be disconnected and you could sit and have a curry with friends. And the only people who mattered were the people in the room. And now that doesn't happen. And there's all the old tropes of social media and phones have killed the art of conversation but the same thing happens with social media once you've had these conversations on whatsapp and facebook and stuff nobody nobody's got a conversation for the curry house and i find that's a bit sad right yeah i totally agree about that i think that um there's a lot more people now that are setting boundaries at least when i talk to uh, a lot of my friends there's um quite a number of people that permanently have their phone on do not disturb so that uh, they feel like they're in control of when they check their notifications and messages or uh, I had a group of friends that if we'd go out, uh, the rule was everybody would put their phones on the center of the table and the first person that touched the phone had to buy the first round. 
<laughs> you know, games like that. Uh, I definitely, um, as far as dating, decided a while ago that I don't want to be uh, social media friends with anybody I'm dating because it's boring when you go out on a date with someone and you've already seen everything they've done for the past week. You, you don't have anything to really talk about. You, you're like, you already know everything. It's not fun and exciting anymore. And you can't really get to know them. You just kind of read the synopsis of them online. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's the grumpy old man in me. Um, and I, I'm just as guilty as everyone else. Like I, I will sit on my phone all the time as well. Um, and, and I feel that we've lost something. Like I, I've lamented the fact that in the past, if I wanted to go out with my mates, we'd, before the days of cell phones, we'd phone one of the guys and say, Oh, we're going to be in this pub. And we'd figure it out. We didn't have to use Google Maps. We didn't have to use location tracking services or instant messages to find out which pub everyone was in. You'd just phone Dave's mum and Dave's mum would pass on the message to everyone else and you'd all end up in the pub and then you'd have conversation. And none of you had spoken to each other for the entire week because you'd all been at work in different places. You all get together and you have tons to talk about. And like you say now, you don't because you've all shared everything socially and now there's nothing to talk about. And so it's not a surprise that you pull your phone out in the restaurant because the people around you, you know everything about them because they've shared everything. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're, you're gonna, it's a spiral downwards of, of uh, social conversation. Right. Where do I even start with this? How, how is it that I am the one who's defending social media here? I'm supposed to be like the old curmudgeon, but no, I think social media is an amazing thing. It's, allowed me to do so much with my life. It allows me to mostly ignore the people who I don't really want to have much to do with, but kind of have to keep up with for like social reasons or whatever. Um, or the people I want to see occasionally, it means that when I do get to see them, like I have some clue of what's going on in their life and I don't have to have six months worth of backstory about what they've been doing, all the inane shit, because I've seen all the inane shit. And also, it means that I get to keep up with my internet friends, which might sound a bit sad, but like, you know, I kind of count you two alongside <laughs> those internet friends. And, you know, it, without it, I wouldn't have my job pretty much, I don't think. I, I don't know, do, does an old school PHB BB forum count as social media? No. Well, it was kind of proto-social media forums, wasn't it? Um and without that kind of thing, I wouldn't know my wife. So my life would be completely different. It might be awesome and amazing, but no, I, I, I think I think social media is more of the instant gratification thing, and it's a it's 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 general purpose as well for my mind. Like a PHPBB forum that you visited back in the day, did it have a subject? Was there a a shared interest, a music or yeah, right, and so. There's people with a shared common interest. It's not people who are necessarily friends with each other. It's not a social network of connected people. It's, it's a group. It's a club. It's like the, I don't know, Audi owners club or the BMW owners club. They're not like super friends, but they have a common shared interest. Um, and so it's a bit like Linux user groups. Like the common interest is the operating system that runs on their computer and they're enthusiastic about it. Whereas social media is more of, the public, the public projection of your personal persona. And so it's, it's, it's more you than the thing you're interested in. I don't want to blow your mind here, but 
that's all friends are. It's just people who you've got shit in common with. And when you cease to have things in common with them, like you don't work together anymore or your kids don't go to dancing together anymore, then almost all of the time you lose contact with them. Or at least that's what mates are, I suppose. True friends are people who you can have nothing in common with anymore and still stay friends. But they are very rare in my experience. Mm, no, I, th I think you're... No, I think there are people who you enjoy the company of that you want to go and see. They don't necessarily have a huge amount in common. There might be a thing you had in common in the past, but they're people you want to spend time with, those people. Yeah, that's true friends rather than just friends or mates. Uh, I, I see there being a difference there. There's people who you have stuff in common with and you get on with and you have a laugh and all the rest of it, but you don't have that deeper connection that makes you stay in contact when the thing that you had in common goes away. Hmm. Not so sure. Uh, fair enough. But it also, I'm just not having this idea that you've got nothing to talk about because you've seen it all on social media. It, in some ways, it gives you more to talk about. No. Like, I, when I get together to do these podcasts, I often will almost always have a chat to whoever I'm doing it with beforehand and i'm following all of you lot on social media and yet i still have plenty to talk to you about i mean me and chris sometimes will talk for like an hour or more before we start linux action news because we just shoot the shit and even though we know exactly what's going on we still find stuff to talk about yeah there's always stuff to talk about but when you're like when you turn up to the pub and you know you got a bruise on your face or you know something happened oh what happened there alan you you've got a story to tell and that that whole you know grab a drink sit around have a laugh everyone take the mick out of you because you fell over and bumped your head and that's why you've got a bruise but everyone beforehand is speculating about whether someone beat you up or you know how the other guy did and and you know that kind of storytelling thing that humans do if you just post a selfie on instagram saying bump my head on the door you get into the pub it's like Oh, look, yeah, there's that bruise that I saw yesterday. No story to be told. That story is gone. Yeah, you'll find other things to talk about. But there's so much more that you could have talked about that you've, like, you've burned on social media. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's the there's a different type of conversation there, right? Like, the, you can, they can always have the kind of conversations about, like, the meaning of the universe and that kind of thing, or philosophical discussions or whatever, right? That those aren't mm -hmm. necessarily suited for social media, but the kind of storytelling, I think, is where you develop, I think, a lot of personal connections or a lot of relatability or that you can just have a laugh with someone or um, I think it tells – maybe just as much about who you are and how you experience life as some of those deeper philosophical conversations. You know that cream egg story that uh, Jono tells everyone on the planet? I don't know if you're aware of this story. It doesn't ring a bell. Okay, well, he hasn't told you. So um, next time you're in the same place as Jono, get him to tell you the cream egg story. Um, and that story would not be something you would write down and post on Facebook. Like, it's an anecdote. It's a story. And you just, you just wouldn't write that down. You might, you might, like, some people do long posts on Facebook. And, you know, if you can, if you like the person and they're interesting enough and enough other people have liked it, then maybe it's worth your time and investment to read that story. But actually, it's way more fun if you're sat in a bar and someone starts telling you this anecdote and then you've got that story and you're, you can tell it. To other people in another bar like a year later i'm i'm still retelling that cream egg story like 10 years after it actually happened and and so you get a lot of mileage out of that and i know other people tell it um 
But if I, all I did was go, oh, yeah, that was funny, after reading it on Facebook and then press a share button, then everyone I know has then seen it. And you've then completely lost the ability to, like, if I say, oh, yeah, let me tell you the cream egg story. We're sat in a pub. And they go, yeah, yeah, we saw it. You shared it last week. It's like, oh, okay. Right. And so this gets to the heart of the problem here. If people share everything and you already know why they've got a bruise or you've already heard the cream egg story, then they are doing it wrong, social media. You shouldn't share every fucking aspect of your life. It should be, you know, you should hold enough back so that then when you do get together with people, you've got something to talk about. And I think that much like almost everything in life, it's not the tool, it's what you do with the tool. And social media is a good tool to either promote stuff and do work stuff or just find interesting stories or pictures or whatever. But, you know, it's like uh, you can use a drill to put up a set of shelves or you could, like, you know, drill a load of holes in your face. Well, if you drill holes in your face, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? And by sharing loads all the time and by being friends with people who share too much, then you're doing it wrong. Whereas what you're doing, Dan, with your dating and not being social media friends with the people who you're dating that's doing it right okay so a hashtag ask error would you consider moving to the us or have you thought about it and i suppose we can say for you dan have you thought about moving out of the us <laughs> maybe to europe or something so popey have you considered moving to the us uh the first time i ever went to the us i think was for work and i went to i went to palo alto and this was early 2000s and i had a hire car and I was driving around that area of um, like San Francisco and down to the Bay Area. And I really enjoyed it. I loved it. And I thought, oh my God, this, this is like nerd heaven. I went to a Linux user group out there and uh, I thought it was amazing. And I've been to plenty of other parts of the US, um, bits in the middle, mostly the bits around the edges that are really quite good, bits in the middle, not so much. There's a big but coming here, isn't there? And No, but I, it, well, I really thought I would love to live here. And every, every single one of those places, like I've thought, wow, New York is amazing. And I think, oh, I'd quite like to live here. And then I think about Florida and, oh, it's so sunny here. Oh, that would be, and Disney's nearby. It'd be lovely to live here. And I think about, um, up in the top left bit, uh, you know, Portland up there and all these places are great, but I think I can only take them in short doses because there's, there's other things about America that I just wouldn't, I don't think I could, I, it would annoy me like stupid stuff like the TV. Uh, I, that would just irritate me the way TV works in America and like 30 seconds of content, three minutes of adverts just like grinds my gears and the health back of healthcare irritates me and the short holidays that you get as an employee and the tax system and just like in the if i could move there and bring over all the cultured parts of europe then i would do it but uh those things are the things that would stop me moving to america tea rice dinners and the nhs if you could have all that over there <laughs> you'd be laughing those would help yeah <laughs> What about you, Dan? Have you thought about leaving ever? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's funny, actually, traveling for work and talking to people uh, in other countries, when you tell them that you're from California, uh, no matter where you're at, people are like, 
you know, wow, California, that's amazing. And, and it's a really great place here. I really love it. And um, especially where I am in Sacramento, I feel like that I'm so centrally located that it's only a couple hours to, you know, go to the beach or a couple hours up into the mountains um, to, into the snow. You know, I'm a, there's tons of really beautiful national parks and historic landmarks and great culture and food and music. And I mean, I, I feel like that California is the greatest country in the world. <laughs> I don't know about the rest of the U.S., but I love California. But yeah, I, I've totally thought about, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to spend some time uh, in another country, uh, especially a country that uh, I could have proper health care in. That would be great. Um, but you know, getting to uh, spend some time in Spain uh, was really awesome. And I think that, you know, I, I'd love to live there for a year or two just to, you know, try something different and, uh, you know, work on my, my Spanish and that sort of thing. Well, I very nearly moved to Los Angeles. And by very nearly, I mean, I thought about it while a bit drunk once. <laughs> no, well, I had started saving up to do so. I was in a situation where I was very free. I wasn't in a relationship the bands that I was in weren't really going anywhere. And I thought, I'm sick of this fucking horrible weather. I want to go somewhere that's nice and warm and people speak English, or at least a variant thereof. And I thought, yeah, LA, go there, you know, as an illegal, basically, because I didn't really have anything going for me. I wouldn't have, um, I don't know, not got a green card or whatever it is that you need to officially go there. So my plan, as stupid as this sounds, as an early 20s, young man was to just go there on holiday and then just never come back and be a musician and you know maybe work in a bar or something to pay the bills and just try and make it i suppose there are some things going for america obviously you know it's very e the retail side of things it's very easy to find a store that will sell you anything you want and um yeah there are there is such a diverse range of people in america that you you could find somewhere where you would fit in, whether that's um, fit in in terms of, you know, your religion or your sexuality or whatever it might be. You could find somewhere in the States that I think it's big enough and, you know, multicultural enough, maybe, <laughs> to a degree. Uh, but I don't live there. So, I, you know, my opinion is based on an outsider's view of, of the place and just someone who's visited there a dozen times or so. But yeah, I, I do like it. I, and every time I go there, I think, oh, God, I love this. I love, you know, so many things about the country. But there's just, there's enough that would just grind my gears that would make me, I don't know, just want to leave. <laughs> it's a lot harder to stay healthy here, for one. <laughs> yeah, totally. Portions are crazy. Anywhere, anytime I travel outside the US, uh, it's always like, oh, I had a meal and I don't feel like I'm going to die. <laughs> You know, <laughs> this is great. Why can't we have this at home? So I have this feeling when I see dialogues on a computer screen, and I I don't know if it's just me or whether this is a commonly held belief, but it's a bit like synesthesia, you know, that thing where you see colors or you hear colors or taste colors or whatever. Um, I, I see a dialogue on the screen on a computer and something in my head is deconstructing what's behind that dialogue, like that it's Python or GTK or that there's um, the application that's behind it. And I, inside my head, I kind of know the structure of what's behind that dialogue. And I, if, if it's on Linux, for some reason, dialogue boxes look and feel fragile to me. I, 
and I, it's really hard to explain, and I don't know if I've made myself very clear, but dialogues to me on Linux kind of project this feeling to me of a lack of robustness. And on, and I don't know if it's the, the styling around the edge that does it, or because I know what's inside that dialogue, the, the, like, the contents of the code that made that dialogue appear. But if I look at a dialogue box on, like a pop-up box on a Mac or on Windows, I generally don't get that feeling. And I don't know why that is. I don't know what's causing it. And I don't know if I'm the only person who ever gets these feelings of fragility when looking at dialogue boxes on, on Linux. I definitely understand that feeling, and I, I could extend it to other UI elements as well. But specifically regarding dialogues, um, yeah, there was something about actually I noticed uh, when I first got the Nintendo Switch and a system dialogue popped up, and there was just something about it that just it just felt like, oh, this is like how a dialogue should feel. And it, I haven't taken the time to deconstruct why that is or why it feels different. But yeah, I, I don't know if, if maybe it's just a thing of like, I know how this is constructed. And so it feels less like just like a thing that exists and more like a thing that's built just because I know that. Right. Or if there's actually some quality that is missing that would make it feel more like a thing that just is instead of a thing that's built. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, it's not just limited to dialogues. Like in the um, indicator area in the top right-hand corner of the screen, when those little fit menus come down when you touch stuff, it's something about the way that they're drawn on the screen. I don't know if it's the frame rate or the fact that you can kind of see the in-betweening of the frames as it's drawing it, and you can see the window grow as it, and it doesn't just like appear fully formed on the screen. Like if I pull my phone out of my pocket, it, you, you, as the phone comes into my hand and into my view, I don't see the battery appear and then the circuit board and then the case and then the screen appear it comes out of my pocket as a fully formed phone it's a it's a tangible item and i think that's part of it it's you've hit the nail on the head it's it's it i think it's partly because of knowing how it's built and when i see it come onto the screen not fully formed i think that's helping me think it, it almost feels like and i don't know why i'm focusing on dialog boxes over application windows i think it partly because they float in the middle of the screen and there's something weird about a thing that's just floating in the middle of the screen because tangible real objects don't do that. Gravity pulls them down to the bottom and like your phone, when you put it on the desk, stays on the desk. It doesn't float in the middle of the air in front of your face. Well, I've got two answers for you here. One, have you got a minute to talk about XFCE? Because there's none of that like animation bullshit. Things just bang, appear, and then bang, go away again. So... I don't get what you mean there, but I do kind of get what you mean with regards the actual substance of menus and dialogues and everything. And I think that the key difference between Linux and other platforms is the honesty that you have with them. There's no lies and, you know, because there's no point lying in a dialogue because you can see the source code if you are proficient enough, if you're experienced enough, and so you can't really hide things in Linux, can you? I don't know if it's integrity or lies. It's more, I think it is the, something to do with the way they're drawn. And, and it's just, yes, it, it's possible that perhaps I'm using desktops that aren't 
super fast or maybe my computer is not tuned particularly well and maybe people who are listening to this are now opening and closing dialogue windows on their computer and going no idiot they just appear they don't like i don't know maybe maybe my system's just heavily loaded but i see it a lot and it, it triggers this thing in my head that that is like this feels fragile it doesn't feel well put together i don't know maybe it's because some of the applications i'm using are written in languages which are not super well optimized like a dialogue that's written in python maybe that takes a little while to put things on the screen um i don't know i don't i don't feel this with tablets and phones i only feel this with desktops it's weird is it a design issue then can design fix the problem for you do you think uh, possibly I know I, I, I've commented on elementary before how I, I really like the, the, the smoothness and the, um, the way everything's integrated together and it, it feels cohesive. Maybe it's part of this, this thing that, um, we talked about in a previous episode about how we've got all these different toolkits, all these different applications that look very different from each other. And, you know, the, the dialogues aren't uniform. And maybe on other platforms, I'm more likely to see more uniform dialogues. And on Linux, I'm more likely, because I'm not running elementary and I've got lots of disparate applications written in different toolkits, I'm more likely to see these different dialogues. So I don't get that consistency. And maybe that's what's jarring is the lack of consistency. Yeah, it definitely breaks. Uh, the, there's some kind of illusion or, or suspension of disbelief that that gets broken, I think, when you have mixed toolkits in there, because then it starts to feel like, um, things that are, are definitely built from like almost salvage materials. You feel like, uh, when you see all these kind of things around that they don't, they don't really feel like that they're, um, all part of the same kind of designed ecosystem of, of these kind of things that just exist in this world. It's like you're reading a book and then all of a sudden a character from a completely different genre is thrown in and, and it just throws off the, the, like, I think it's a suspension of disbelief of, of this mm. is like a, um, a, a cohesive thing and not something that was hobbled together by people. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, don't take this the wrong way. I'm genuinely not trying to troll you here, honest. <laughs> but have you noticed more of this sort of thing in the last couple of years, say, since you started working on snaps and using them all the time? <laughs> no, it's something I've thought for a long time. It's, it's, it's one of those things I've, I've only just recently thought about articulating it because you were asking for things to talk about. And I've often thought about this, and I've never even never even discussed this with anyone ever. It's just one of those things I thought everyone did. And I thought everyone knew that things look fragile here. And I don't, to be fair, I don't use Windows every day. And I don't use Mac every day. It's entirely possible that other people who do use those platforms feel the same way about those. And it may be because I'm so familiar with this platform. That's why it's triggering me. And people familiar with Windows would see a Internet Explorer dialogue and be like, oh, that's not native. That doesn't look right. Or a Chrome dialogue or a Firefox dialogue or something. And, and you know, feel like there's, you know, in a Western, when uh, they were making Westerns in Hollywood, they would build the buildings were actually just facades yeah. with like wooden braces behind them to hold them up. Then you'd film down the street and only see the facades. of the. It's like that. I feel like many of the windows and, and dialogues and things that I see in Linux are like those facades. They're just kind of like put up on the screen. You know, there's someone behind my screen with the dialogue on the end of a stick holding it in front of me. <laughs> it, 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 it just doesn't feel right. And I, I'd, I'd love to hear from our listeners if 
I'm the only weirdo that feels like this or whether it's a it's a common thing. I'd love to know because maybe I can seek help. I don't know. Yeah, I, I do think it's a real phenomenon, though. I think that, um, you know, as we're doing design for elementary OS, that one of the things that's always kind of in the back of the mind is um, that a user should pick it up and use it and not think about, like, this is a Linux distro, right? Like, then, and then you're thinking about how it's built and less about, like, using it as a thing. Like, really good interfaces should just be transparent. And you shouldn't be thinking about how they're built, I don't think. So that mm. when it feels like Linux, I think that you're, you're saying that you, it feels like something that is kind of components and you can see all the pieces and how they're put together and it doesn't really feel like a product. Yeah. It's like the matrix. Yeah. You can see through it and see all the pixels behind it. Right. Exactly. Okay. A quick hashtag ask error. Foldable phones, dumb idea or dumbest idea? I don't know. I don't know. It kind of seems like a gimmick to me. I, I, I guess I could see you, you, this is supposed to be solving a problem of we want to bigger screens, but we want them more portable, right? Is that what is it supposed to be? But it seems like that all the, all the prototypes that are, that are out there right now, I mean, the technology is just not even there. It's, it, they, they look dumb and they're clunky and like they're fat and they aren't really more portable at all. They're just not, the tech's not there. I'm not convinced that the uh, selling point for this is we want bigger phones, but we want them portable. I think the selling point for this is everyone's bought a slab of glass and we've got to make something new and innovative to make people buy a new slab of glass. The, the relentless drive you could keep making the CPUs have more cores and go faster and you can make the displays closer and closer and closer to the edges and you can add additional sensors so you can tell when you're doing all kinds of stuff. But they generally all have the same form factor. They're now at the point where they have to step way beyond what we've got now in order to differentiate themselves from everything else. Like you look at what Samsung have done with that Linux on Dex thing. It's something different. You you can't get that on uh, many phones. So it's something that differentiates. It's like the um, red phone, which has an alleged 3D display. Um, it's like a lenticular display. It's trying too hard to be differentiated from everything else to try and get you to buy this new slab of glass when actually... What most people want is just a longer lasting battery. Yeah, I mean, if you watch like the uh, iPhone keynote when iPhone first came out, right? And uh, Steve Jobs gets up there and he talks about the new hardware that went into it. And every piece of hardware that he talks about enables some kind of feature or solve kinds of some kind of problem. When he talks about the proximity sensor, you know, it's because, you know, you don't want to be pressing buttons on the touchscreen when you hold it up to your face. Or when he talks about, you know, the accelerometer and, oh, look, you can turn the phone and it goes into cover flow. Or, uh, you know, when he's talking about hardware, hardware features, all of them are enabling some kind of new software feature, right? And I, I don't know if folding a screen really enables some kind of new software feature or experience, really. It kind of seems like just doing something just to do it, just to have a new product. Uh, I, I don't know if there's a real focus there on what are people's problems, what are the things that they're experiencing that we could make better? Well, I've got a great idea for smartphone innovation, right? What we want to do is 
make it completely open source, uh, base it on Ubuntu, completely rewrite it all from scratch, the whole interface and the underpinnings and everything, and even have convergence, there's no way that could possibly fail. <laughs> I think we tried that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, we talked about moving to America and how I had kind of thought about maybe doing that when I was in my early 20s and then things changed. I met my now wife and decided against it. But it kind of got me thinking about how do you balance living for now and living in the moment with planning for the future and living for the future? Because if I'd done that then, it would have been a good idea. I would have had a lot of fun but then maybe my future wouldn't have been so great, especially when I got busted for being an illegal immigrant and deported. And it's kind of the same now. It's like if I'd lived for the now only, then I would basically be going to the pub a lot, an awful lot probably, and buying loads of really expensive guitars and not thinking about the future and retirement and you know all the boring stuff. So I think I have somewhat struck a balance between that. But how do you two do that? So I've got an anecdote, and I'm going to bring it around, but this is going to be weird for a second. When uh, when I was a kid, I was really into real-time strategy games, and I played a crap load of Age of Empires. And I would get all into all the tech trees and want to build all the different units. And I'd think about, you know, I'd start a game thinking about that in an hour and a half, I'm going to have this building that produces this unit and, you know, spend all this time and I'm building out my agriculture. And uh, there was a point when I realized that there was another way to play the game, which is use the most basic unit at the beginning and spend all of your resources and then just go smash the guy and the game's over in 10 minutes. So... I don't know if there's a right or a wrong way to do it. It's like, which way is more fun for you, right? Uh, you know, if you if you want to do that long game planning for the future stuff and you feel like that makes the game of life more fun for you, then I don't think that's necessarily a better or worse way to play the game than, you know, just completely living for now and, and kind of making it up as you go along, as long as you feel good about the life you're living. What about you, Popey? I mean, you are very settled. It's fair to say you've got your house and your mortgage and your kids and, you know, your career. I mean, how have you managed to balance that throughout your life? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, I tend not to plan, like, years ahead. And that's, maybe, that's a personal fault, maybe. Um, but it's seen me okay so far like career choices I've made have been not like tremendously planned. Um, having children was planned, I guess. <laughs> Just in case they're listening. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, as in it wasn't a surprise and we knew we were going to do it and we were prepared, but it, so we knew we were going to do it. I, I, I wasn't quite sure of exactly what the outcome would be. I know this sounds really ridiculous. Like, you know, the bit you do at the start, the outcome is a human being that latches onto you for the rest of your life, right? There are obviously actions have consequences and the consequences I have two amazing children that I love to bits, but I didn't really have like a game plan that I went through. I kind of meandered a bit through life. I have a, I have a friend who I went to school with. So the same age as me and he had an office job, like most of us who 
were in the same class, had had office jobs of some kind, all doing different stuff, but a few people in IT and, and general office admin and stuff. And he kind of went off piste and um, he went traveling. He's an intelligent, bright guy. He went traveling. He um, got a couple of office jobs, couldn't really stick at it, didn't last long in most of his jobs, um, found someone who was similarly interested in living for the now and not having children and, um, you know, having the best life they could have. And I've often wondered, you know, what would he be like if he'd gone down the same path I did? You know, the getting a job, getting another job, getting another job, um, rather than the kind of flitting. But then I look at other people who are like super career focused and have escalated up the ladder. And I just feel that's, that's not something I really want to get. I don't want to get too stressed about climbing that corporate ladder. I don't know. It's if I had a, a second go, if I hit restart and had another go at it, I'm not entirely sure I'd do an awful lot different. Well, it sounds like the words of a very content man, which is good, I suppose. Yeah, I am quite fat. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what you're saying. <laughs> Thought you were working on that. Yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. On my uh, on my dad's, I know this is a horrible, like, cliched phrase, but on my dad's deathbed, he said to me that he was he didn't regret anything. Like he he died. He smoked a lot for a lot of his life. Smoked cigars. He got lung cancer and died. But he was happy throughout his life, majority, and he enjoyed travel and he enjoyed everything. But he didn't regret anything. He didn't blame anyone. It was his own life choices that he made. And he had the amount of time on the planet that he had. Um, I, I don't think you can necessarily spend your life looking back and thinking, oh, I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd done that, because you can't do it. It's not a video game. You can't reset and have another life. So you've just got to live with what you've got. Yeah, I'm definitely a big planner just by nature. I, I like to to project out, and um, it's not uncommon for me to think about um, how this will affect me in five years or 10 years or, um, you know, where I want to be, uh, especially financially plotting out and, and, and really great distances. But, um, I, I don't know. I, something that Alan said kind of struck me is, is using the word prepared more than planned. And I think that that's, that's something that I've been trying to do more recently is, less being completely planned out and more just being prepared and thinking about things in terms of, uh, you know, in order to achieve my goals and not have them be disrupted, uh, you know, I want to be prepared for these kind of things, but not, not necessarily like completely eliminate, uh, any sense of, uh, whimsy or being able to, uh, be spontaneous or, uh, you know, change those plans if, if something else seems better or more interesting. Right. And life has a habit of throwing crap at you now and then. Like in the last 24 hours, my cat's gone missing. I've got a water leak in the kitchen and someone fraudulently used my credit card. So. None of those things were planned. I wasn't prepared for any of those things to happen. <laughs> and, I, and if I had my life again, maybe I would hope that those three things didn't happen. But what can you do? You know, life goes on. I'm not dead. I'm just, you know, annoyed and wet and, you know, lusting after my cat. <laughs> what about you, Joe? Are you a big planner or are you a more live-in-the-moment guy? I like to think that I'm living the moment, but... I think that I do plan quite a lot and try and prepare as much as possible. Um, I think that 
meeting my wife has massively changed that. I used to just totally live for now and I was fucking miserable as a result of that. Whereas she came along and gave me a lot more structure in my life and she meticulously plans everything. And we do sometimes kind of clash about that. But I do think that's been a good balancing force in my life and has made me kind of think about the future a little bit more. And so as a result of that, like now I'm doing this podcasting thing full time. I mean, I hope it's going to last forever, but who knows? You know, a pipe might burst in the metaphor of the plumbing of my career, you know, but I'm not totally fucked if that happens. I can go back to my old thing, which I fucking hated, but paid all right. And, you know, I can slip back into that relatively easily, I think. Yeah, but when the pipe bursts, it's not like all the skills you've learned of and all the context you've made and all the experience you've had, it goes out down the drain when the pipe breaks. You've, you've still got a load of extra skills now and more contacts and a higher profile for your LinkedIn, you know, searches <laughs> yeah. in the future. Yeah. Like it's, it's all experience. Now I was thinking about that today, actually, about how, you know, if for some reason this current thing doesn't work out, then I might not necessarily have to go back to the old thing because like you said, I've made contacts and my profile's risen a little bit and stuff. And I do have more experience now of production and, you know, all the boring stuff that isn't like public facing. So maybe I could manage to do that still. But it is also nice to have the complete fallback of the old thing that I used to hate. Yeah. I, I didn't enjoy the thing I did before I worked for Canonical. And uh, when I got an opportunity to join Canonical, I jumped pretty quick. And and then I was a bit concerned about whether this whole, you know, Linux thing would work out. And I always said to my friends, you know, well, I've got the SAP stuff that I used to, I've got that I could fall back on. Um, and that was like eight years ago that I joined Canonical, something like that, eight years. Um, no, six years or thereabouts. But I thought I, I would have to do that. I would have to fall back on the thing that I did previously, but actually, I don't think that's a productive way to think. I think you have to think forwards and, you know, building on what you did before and what you're doing now, there'll be a different opportunity. You don't, it's like people who break up with, you know, a girlfriend and then go and chat to an ex-girlfriend. It's like, no, <laughs> go forwards, find another girlfriend. Don't go back to the one that's safe that you had previously. Move forward. Hashtag Excelsior. <laughs> <laughs>